0: Bismillah, Alhamdulillahi, nasta'inahu Inahu, Wan Nastafiru, Wana Udu Bilahi, Minshururi, Anfusina, Wasayati, Amalina, Manyati, Ilahu, Fala Mudilla Lahu, Waman Yudlil, Fala Hadiyalahu, Wa Ashadu, Allah Illaha illallahu, all thanks and praise are due to God. We seek God's help and forgiveness. We seek refuge in God from the evil within ourselves and the consequences of our evil deeds. Whoever God guides will never be led astray, and whomever God leads astray will never find guidance. I bear witness that there is no God but God, alone, without partners. I bear witness that Muhammad is God's servant and messenger, and O you who believe, be mindful of God as God's do, and make sure you devote yourself to God to your dying moments. There are long and complex explanations of Islamic conceptions of the soul. I'd like to offer some brief descriptions, and also throughout my talk, I pray that you pay close attention to the various questions of contemplations that I present. There are two terms used, ruh, spirit, and nafs, self or soul. In pre-Islamic Arabia, these two terms did not have religious or spiritual connotations. Ruh could mean wind, breath, or that which blows. Nafs refer to the blood, sometimes to the living body. Examples of these meanings are found in the poetry of pre-Islamic Arabia. In the Quran, the term ruh and nafs and nafs are both derived from a root involving air. The verb nafasa means to breathe. The feminine noun nafs and its plural, anfus and nufus, refer to living beings in general and to oneself, tribe or a group in particular. This use of nafs is as a reflexive particle is very common in the Quran where nafs, anfus, or nufus appear over 250 times. In my focus on the nafs, I want to offer you a panoramic view of Islamic conceptions of it and I pray that in this way we can address how to nurture our souls by transcending adverse ways of thinking and navigate towards our, our thriving. Classical Quranic commentary translates and refer to the human soul and oneself interchangeably. Classical commentary can be broadly categorized as traditional, theological, philosophical, and mystical. The distinction between the commentaries are a matter of a certain conceptual scheme of various schools of thought or sectarianism. The, there are differences and overlaps in and between them, in and between these categories. What they all have in common is that they all seek and base their claims and position in the Quran. After that, the differences are due to how the Quran is interpreted, whether literally or not, and the hadith literature utilized to support the given interpretation or position. Traditional concepts of nafs is the most dominant and the normative Sunni perspective. The view of Ibn Qayyim al Jawziyah, um, who died in 1350, a Syrian Hanbali um, theologian and jurist, became a dominant source of the traditional conception of the soul in Islam. In his work, Al Kitab al Ruh, The Book of the Spirit, He lays out the concept, which you are likely to hear whenever a kutbah is given on on the nafs, um, this is what you will likely hear. Ibn Kayyam shared the views of his teacher, Ibn Taymiyyah, and argued that there are three stages or characteristics of the human soul, Amara, Lawaba, and mutmaina. Nafs al Amara is, is the primitive stage of this Nafs, the lower self or the base self of carnal desire inciting evil. Nafs al Lawama is the soul that is self accusing, constantly blames itself, and Nafs al Mutma'ina is the tranquil soul of the, of the virtuous believer as it returns to its Lord. Theological conceptions, also, uh, also called column, of the soul were also prominent in what is called the classical uh, golden age of Islam, the 9th through 12th um, centuries. Their concepts of the soul were, for the most part, materialistic. Mutakalimun, or Kalam theologians, regarded the soul as either the body or identified it with life. They held that the soul had a transient quality and was an accident that occurred to the body. Among them were also disagreements. Some thought of the soul as as an immaterial atom. Other theologians held that the soul to be an atom but not immaterial. They also disagreed as to whether spirit, soul, and life are identical. The ideas of the Persian theologian Al-Ghazali stands out in this category. Philosophical conceptions involved various rationalistic perspectives. These were Islamic theologians who were rationally, or or who used rationality or reasoning of logical discussion. They sought to establish the truth through rational arguments. Most held concepts of the soul, which were for the most part um, material, either regarding it as the body or identified it with life. The theories of the soul formulated by Islamic philosophers were derived largely from Muslim contact with the thoughts of Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, and Plotinus. This impact also shows up in various Islamic sectarian groups, Ismailia, a major branch of, of, Sunni, of Sunni Islam. Notable scholars include Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina. Al-Farabi was born in what is called Kazakhstan to Turkic parents and spent most of his life in Baghdad. Ibisina was a Persian polymath. They are credited with two highly developed psychological theories. According to Al-Farabi, the human rationality or rational soul is at first a potential in the material body, and Ibn Sina on the other hand insists on the individual immortality of all souls. In the Islamic world, it was Ibn Sina's theory of the soul that had the greater influence. Among Muslim mysticism, there is a vast variety of Sufi perspectives of the soul. Often similar to the principal stages of traditional thought, Sufi conceptions also added additional stages with another four sided. Sufi perspectives focus in on what Sufis conceived to be the human soul to be, the soul's purification and the path of holiness. It must follow as it seeks God and the relation of the soul to God, particularly in its intimate experiencing of the divine. Now, why is all this important? Understanding that there are variations and getting a sense of the complexity of the seemingly one simple word, nafs, I hope you can also get a sense of how ideas are often situated and developed and then ingrained deep within our hearts and minds over a long period of time. This also highlights the diversity of Islam and points to the fact that these traditional Islamic perspectives had to be influenced by the various cultures from which the scholars were born, studied, lived, and taught. Arabic, Syrian, Turkic, Persian, and ancient Greek tradition were just a few of the influences affecting interpretations resulting in the religious conceptions we follow today. Religious conceptions are at the heart of how we structure our world by giving us messages about ourselves and others, our value, and the value of others. If we are not conscious, These messages might become a source of harm where it should be a source of empowerment. For example, Pakistani-American theologian and scholar Dr. Rifat Hassan writing on the topic of women in Islam, body, mind, and spirit, and which she challenged traditional Islamic views on women She argued that throughout Islamic history, the conceptions of women have commonly been identified with body rather than with mind and spirit by male male Muslim scholars, even though that is not how women are addressed in the Quran. Here lies an indication of a disconnection in some Islamic conceptualization as applied to the idea of women and addressing the full humanity of women. As a solution, Dr. Hassan insists that the challenge before all women in general, and Muslim women in particular, is to shift from a reactive mindset to a proactive mindset, in which they can finally begin to speak of themselves as full autonomous human beings, who have not only a body, but also a mind and spirit. She calls Muslim women to reflect upon what kind of model of self-actualization can be developed within the framework of normative Islam, which also would take into account the Quranic ideas as well as the reality of the contemporary Muslim world. She concludes the following, quote, no matter how many social political rights are granted to women, As long as they are conditioned to accept the myths used by theologians or religious hierarchies to shackle their bodies, minds, hearts, and souls, they will never become fully developed or whole human beings. Still, knowing this hardly lessens the pain of also knowing that even in this age, characterized by the explosion of knowledge, all but a handful of Muslim women, lack the knowledge of Islamic theology. It is profoundly discouraging to contemplate how few Muslim women there are in the world today who possess the competence, even if they have the courage and the commitment to engage in historical critical study of Islam's primary sources and to develop a theology focusing on women-related issues in the specific context of Islamic tradition, end quote. We can see that Islamic conceptions of the soul are not monolithic, and that dominant ideas are not necessarily a matter of what is the ultimate truth, so much as it is an indication of who holds or have held the dominant power and influence. Therefore, my first question of contemplation is this. Without leaving our love for God, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings upon him, and Islam, without harming others, how can we create a reality in which we flourish? How are we to Islamically cultivate our souls, ourselves? I'd like to posit that human destiny is creative, and a creative mind is a critical mind. The Quran repeatedly challenges the reader to think, and contemplate the signs of God by encouraging us over and over again to reflect, to ponder, and to analyze so that we may understand. The first time that I was invited to speak here, I spoke about my upbringing and some of the personal struggles uh, with my negative way I thought of myself. I spoke about how even though I grew up um, and was trained to create these wonderful things, I had an inner voice which kept telling me that I did not deserve the good things of my life. And so I spent most of my life self-sabotaging my accomplishment. It took a crisis in my life to force me to stop and reflect. As I reflected, I began to analyze my role in the outcome. So, For those of you who need to hear this, here are some more questions of contemplation. What will it take for you to stop and reflect? What will it take for you to stop sabotaging your life? When will you start to know that you deserve better? As you consider these questions, may I offer you some suggestions on how to nurture your soul? Keep in mind that these are suggestions. No one person has all the answers, and part of the joy of nurturing yourself is discovering what you require to live a loving, authentic, and unapologetic life. I pray that my suggestions help you make the necessary transitions if you have not already done so, and if you have, hopefully they facilitate your rise. Reflecting upon how to nurture our souls, my suggestions are inspired by the first 10 verses of the 91st chapter of the Quran, Surah As-Sham's, the sun. Verse one through 10 states, by the sun and its brightness, and the moon as it reflects the sun's light, and the day as it unveils it, and the night as it conceals it, and by heaven and the one who built it, and the earth and the one who spreads it, and by the soul and the one who fashioned it, then with the knowledge of right and wrong inspired it. Successful indeed is the one who purifies their soul, and doomed is the one who corrupts it. Pondering closely that God is extending an oath and swearing on the creation of the Son the moon, the night, the day, the sky, or the heavens, and the earth with all inspiring descriptions in verse 7, and by the soul and the one who fashioned it, God then extends this oath to include our souls while simultaneously telling us something significant about ourselves. God tells us that our souls were fashioned with proportion, order, and enlightenment. We are told that these are innate qualities. I would even extend that to include agency as an innate quality along with enlightenment. Verse eight states, then with the knowledge of right and wrong inspired it. In this verse is yet another characteristic of our soul. That being that our soul, along with an innate awareness of order and proportion There is also innate awareness of right and wrong, good and evil. Verses nine and 10, successful, indeed is the one who purifies their soul, and doom is the one who corrupts it. If you want to succeed, cultivate, grow, nurture yourself, and those that don't, they frustrate, stunt, and corrupt themselves. Zeroing in on these verses, speaking directly to the soul, I would like to draw your attention to and identify something that I see in this surah. I see a three-step process on how to nurture our souls. The first two steps require fundamental shifts in consciousness and the third step requires activation of that consciousness towards the end goal of success. The first step I am asserting that nurturing our souls require that we come to deeply know and deeply believe that our creation is of sound nature. As God says, and by the soul and the one who fashioned it, the first fundamental shift in consciousness is to bring your awareness to the realization that our creation is automatically just right. God has already given you, given us what we need to effectively function in the world. We are not sinners. Criminals, inferior, nor are we derivatives. God has perfected our proportion, therefore, you are worthy because God created you innately worthy. Then with the knowledge of right and wrong inspired it as the second step, here lies the second shift in consciousness. We must come to know and deeply believe that God has endowed us with innate abilities to distinguish evil from good. It is in us on an unconscious level waiting for activation. This then means that God has given us agency. The third step activates and directs consciousness. Successful indeed is the one who purifies their soul and doomed is the one who corrupts it. Success is purification of the soul. Purification of our souls is a process. Throughout the Quran, how to purify the soul is addressed. Abu Huraira reported that the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, has said, richness does not lie in the abundance of worldly goods, but richness is the richness of the soul, heart, the self. It occurs when we take full responsibility. Purification, of our soul occurs when we take full responsibility for nurturing our souls. When we practice sincerity, remembrance, having gratitude, righteous deeds, sadikas, charitable acts. When we cultivate the seed that each of us are born with, we purify our souls through the acceptance of God's love and mercy for us. But if we don't take part in this process, know that we will corrupt and stun our souls. I say what I have said, may God forgive us all. Alhamdulillah, all praise and thanks are due to God alone. How can we get to a place of nurturing in our soul? The first awareness is of God's oath of sincerity on our creation. We have to start by knowing that when God addresses humanity in the Quran, God is speaking to us all. We are worthy of it. We deserve all that is good. The second awareness is of remembrance that our soul is endowed with innate abilities to identify and distinguish what will purify it from what won't. We are given an innate sense and seed or seed of what it means to act with virtues of justice, mercy, and forgiveness. Finally, the process of purification requires action, clearly laid out in the Quran and the example of Muhammad the prophet, peace be upon him. In closing, some final words on the meaning of agency and empowerment. As I thought about the definition, I was reminded of my duty as an educator and as a parent to introduce you to your potential, to demonstrate agency, and to facilitate others on their journey towards self-actualization. My prayer is that all of you become caring individuals who care about our environment and other people, whose agency is exhibited in the ability to make your own decision based upon critical thinking without infringing upon the rights of others to do the same. Agency is a given established with the birth of each human being. The actualization of your agency is empowerment. I can't empower you. You must do that yourself. God has already given you the power. You must activate it. Empowerment requires consciousness of agency and is evidenced by proactivity, autonomy, and self-management. Agency requires the consciousness of the ability to act and to make choices unencumbered by any mental or physical circumstances, even though they may be present. Agency can be individual or it can be a group dynamic requiring internal resolve. How and when a person or group embraces their agency varies and can be complex. Success or failure of an individual or group's decision is not an indication of lack of agency or empowerment. Furthermore, I think that agency and empowerment are distanced from the masses through social constructions designed to cause distractions and incite fear. What are the things that will distract us from nurturing our soul? Fear, doubt, false thinking, injustices to ourselves and others, and feelings of unworthiness will stunt your soul. The nurturing of your soul is critical to the quality of your existence and how you see yourselves collectively and individually. How does this manifest in life? As I mentioned previously, I spent many years of my life neglecting my own self. As a child, I was focused on getting the love and acceptance of the authority figures around me. I obsessed with doing all the right things. I never wanted their disapproval. And I would straighten up and change whatever I was doing immediately if I sensed any. This state of mind followed me into adulthood, and along with the training of how to create and establish school systems and businesses with ease and finesse, there was a constant inner voice which kept telling me that I did not deserve what I had. It said, who do you think you are? This is too good for you. Let others take the credit or give it to someone else. I will let others appropriate my gifts my talents, and my intelligence. I believe that if I did what I was told and followed the rules and regulations, I would one day get my chance at being loved and then I would be successful and happy. I was completely disillusioned when I realized that there was never an end to someone else's rules and regulations over my life. But it was also this grand disillusionment which saved me. In it, I learned many lessons. First, I learned that those I held as authority over my life did not have a place for my success, only a place for my continued servitude. That's why it was so confusing. Serving, helping others, and doing for others, that's good, right? How can what God tells us will purify us be utilized by others to hold us in perpetual servitude? This is what I see as the predicament of millions of women. We know that we are the backbone of our religious institutions, our nations, our communities, and families, and yet we suffer disproportionately within them. If we believe that we are not worthy and somehow an inferior creation, then how can we change our lives? I propose that this is because we have accepted as authority over our lives, those whom have not made a place for our success. They have just made a place for our continued servitude. This is what I think it means when religious interpretations place some members of humanity within roles of limitation, while others are crowns of creation. I think that this is what happens when there are glass ceilings for some, but not for others. I think that this is why justice is withheld within society for some and not for others. I think that this is what happens when love and attention is withheld from some in families and lavished on others. It is people defining success and then deciding your value and worthiness. If you are not deemed worthy, then your value is relegated to perpetual servitude to what they consider to be worthy. This is why so many people are not going after what they want in life. They're going after what they think they can get. They're not going after what what they deserve. They're going after what they believe they deserve, not what they really want. If we follow the words of the Quran, when God calls us to serve, it is after God makes us a promise on creation and the creation of our own selves that unlike human beings, God assures us that servitude to God is based on love and our worthy creation and existence and that there is a place for our success. That's why the importance of you remaining vigil and knowledgeable to what God says in the Quran is the best thing you can do to nurture your soul and to free yourself. What may be missing from our lives is that for full, authentic success, our purification is incomplete by service to others alone. Purification, nurturing ourselves, is also required. That cannot, will not happen unless and until you wholeheartedly embrace that God has sincerely sworn an oath, to you as a matter of fact, and that God has already empowered you. Your creation is powerful, it's good, it's purposeful. If your primary motivation is not in line with what God says, then success and servitude are not balanced. Your sacrifice is minimized, and you will not find acceptance, just servitude to other people and their goals. When you accept what God tells you, God swears an oath on your own selves that you are loved and accepted and then success and servitude are balanced. You will become a better, more focused benefit to others by nurturing your own souls. That is the success. To change things, attitudes must change. If we desire to heal ourselves, our families, communities, our nations, the environment, the world, we must begin with a fundamental shift in our thoughts. Sincerity, remembrance, purification, may it assist us in changing deeply ingrained attitudes which do not give us successful outcomes. As is stated in Surah 98, Bayna, the clear evidence, verse five, and they have been commanded no more than this, to worship God, offering sincere devotion, being true in faith, to establish regular prayer, and practice regular charity, and that is the religion right and straight. God willing, I pray that you will reflect on what I have said, and I hope that you um, put into action what I have said in the best manner possible. Do I? Our Lord, Forgive us, our brethren who came before us into the faith, and leave not in our hearts rancor or sense of injury against those who have believed. Our Lord, thou art indeed full of kindness, most merciful. Our Lord, grant us good in this world and good in the hereafter, and save us from the punishment of the fire. O Allah, enlighten what is dark in us, strengthen what is weak in us, mend what is broken in us, heal what is sick, straighten what is crooked, and revive whatever peace and love has died among us. God commands justice, doing good, and generosity towards relatives, and God forbids what is shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. God teaches you so that you may take heed. Recite what has been revealed to you of the book and stay consistent in prayer. Indeed, prayer restrains the human from lewd and wicked behaviors, but the remembrance of God is even greater, and God knows everything you are doing. Wa akimna asalat. Perform the prayer.